Thanks very much for having me here. Probably about 20 minutes actually, given the change time frame here to give you all a chance to get involved. So I run a centre at Demos. I started it about 18 months ago, which is a collaboration between an academic institution, the University of Sussex, and us, the think tank, which is supposed to do policy impactful work that takes academic work and turns it into something for journalists and policy makers to understand. One of the things that we noticed about a couple of years ago, actually, is that think tanks are, they used to be on the cutting edge of technology. They used to be thinking always five years down the line about what the big trends were. But we've been completely overtaken as a sector. We can't keep up with the speed of change. We are miles behind what's going on at the moment with media production and consumption. And my small and imperfect effort to bridge that gap was to set up a centre looking at ways to use automated techniques of collecting social media data for research purposes. That's why we call it the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media. And we use machine learning, which some of you might be familiar with, but I'll talk to you about it in a second, uh, to try to generate large new data sets and turn it into something that's meaningful. As I'll explain, extremely difficult, extremely riven with methodological and ethical problems at every step of the way. I want to start by just saying something quite, quite bluntly, which is, even though I run a centre about social media, I really don't like social media. <laughs> I, I really don't like it, and I really don't like much what it's doing to journalism, to our attention span, to my attention span anyway, to a lot of things. It concerns me. I, I, I see the benefits of it as well, but I can see some real dangers to it. So I'm not an evangelist, that's my point. I'm not an evangelist at all. I'm, I'm greatly sceptical about the power of it to improve our knowledge, make society more open, and all the other often quite ridiculously utopian attributes that are given to it. I'm going to start by talking about just a couple of trends in media consumption as I see them uh, over the last five years or so. Then say something about how media production, as I see it, is changing. I'm particularly just talking about two things. The opportunities of social media for mainstream media journalism or journalists more generally, and the challenges. So this is very simple. Inevitably going to miss a lot of stuff out, and I know everyone has an opinion and knowledge about this stuff, so I'll look forward to your views. Starting off with some trends on consumption, potential benefits of production, and potential problems of production. And maybe finish with a couple of examples of what you might want to do practically from here. On media consumption, the big trends that I see, and you must see them too, is the, um, the proportion of people that now get their main, their news stories from social media. That is from people link, usually linking them to mainstream media sources, to individual stories, which are sometimes called link shares, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and LinkedIn, whatever else people use. This sort of ability to share story by story, little bit by little bit, among a network of trusted individuals and friends is quite, I think, has quite a dramatic change in the way that people consume news. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, people aren't getting their sources from the mainstream. I mean, I've done a number of pieces of analysis looking at news consumption, this type of news consumption. News is still overwhelmingly, or Twitter and Facebook stories, are still overwhelmingly driven by the main news stories of the day as reported on the Today programme, in the Daily Mail, in the Guardian, etc. Still absolutely essential, it's just being broken up piecemeal and shared among people. 
And to me, that's rather interesting as a phenomenon, because what it also means is that people are much more able to surround themselves with stories that essentially corroborate whatever worldview they already happen to hold. And I've done rather a lot of work on radical political groups, especially the English Defence League, which some of you may know, but it's a sort of right-wing anti-Islamic movement here in the UK. They're often called Islamophobes, and I say to I push it to the former leader, who I know quite well, you're Islamophobic, aren't you, Tommy Robinson? And he always replies with the same thing, which is, I'm not Islamophobic, because phobia suggests an irrational fear of Islam. And he proceeds to list for me all of these news stories that he's been reading, which tell him that Muslims tend to be pedophiles, terrorists, radicals, whatever else. I.e., people are creating a sort of bounded rationality for themselves, in which it is actually quite rational, given what they are reading, to think that Muslims are a great threat to British society. And I think that is one of the risks, especially in some of the more radical groups, of how this media fragmentation plays out. In addition to that, I think you will of course have noticed the sort of the proliferation of sources. The fact that we're sort of, Huffington, uh, Adriana Huffington is probably the best known example of this, the idea that we're all journalists to some extent now. We're all publishers to some extent. Each time I tweet a frivolity, I am a publisher. I've published a tweet is technically what you're doing. We're all publishing, and so we're all, in some senses, bound by the rules of publishing, by libel and, and so on, uh, copyright and whatever else. Well, I don't think many of us really know what that means. You might have seen today that the, uh, I think, was it the Director of Public Prosecution? I think it was Chris Grayling, actually, who said, he was, he was trying to remind people, essentially, about the importance of contempt of court, i.e. it still matters on Twitter just because you tweet something it's, you still essentially are feeling contempt of court if you're talking about people involved in a case. But I don't think we're all quite familiar with a lot of those rules that essentially bound our publications today. And the third thing I want to talk to you to, to mention is trust levels. We have this amazing Europe-wide poll called the Eurobarometer. Actually, it's not amazing. In some ways, it's really bad. But what it does give you is a longitudinal sense of how trust in different institutions is up and down. And for a lot of people now, the trend is quite clear. More and more of them trust the internet, whatever that really means, but the internet, and less and less trust the mainstream media. That, that is to say television and printed press and radio. Now, of course, the internet to me is essentially shorthand for I don't really trust authorities, but I trust myself to be able to go and find the correct information. Now, the reality is I think a lot of people don't really know what they're doing when they're surfing. I don't think they really know how to distinguish between truthful and inaccurate sources. I don't think we teach any of that at school at all. We're still miles behind understanding how things like simple things, like how does an algorithm, how does Google's algorithm work, and how does search engine de-optimization techniques work? Because this is your gateway to the information world. And yet we don't really teach any of this stuff. There may be a couple of examples, but I think our education system, almost necessarily so, because it takes decades to change national curriculums. It's a huge political struggle. I mean, it's because it's so considered to be so important. And yet the speed with which our information world has changed has completely outpaced the ability of a slow-moving national curriculum to realign. So, they're just a couple of big trends, and I'm sure there are more. I know there are more, but I won't go into them all. 
So how is media production being changed? Well, the single one thing I think all of us are aware of is the proliferation of source material. Just absolutely incredible how much information there is out there. 200 million tweets, I think, are published every day. I mean, it changes so quickly that it's impossible to keep up with it. Something like 4 billion pieces of content are uploaded onto Facebook every day, about half of which are public, which means every day 2 billion pieces of content you could have access to, one of which might be really important and interesting. We're talking about information production on a scale which is in, uh, unimaginable. And essentially what it means is to manage that in any way, often to create that in any meaningful way, you start needing to, to bring machines into the equation, which enormously complicates matters, which I'll say something about in a moment. Now, because we have so much information, the question to me is, what's important and what's not? I mean, I'm a researcher, I'm not a journalist, I don't have a background in journalism, but a lot of the questions are similar. Why should I trust this piece of data over another? And traditional social sciences has methods to try to do that, to try to make evidence rigorous and meaningful and robust. And we've been developed over the years. We know how to run a good focus group. We know how to do a good poll. When it comes to looking at online information, we don't really know how to distinguish between the trustworthy and the not trustworthy in the same way. And let me give you an example. Have any of you ever seen a tweet where you're not entirely sure whether it's accurate or not? And I don't mean whether or not what the person's saying is true. I mean whether that tweet really came from the person it's alleged to have come from. Because I was going to try to show you, but the program is slightly different here. It is unbelievably easy to make a fake tweet. So it looks absolutely identical. I was going to fake your official accounts one, something really obscene. <laughs> I've seen it happen a lot. I've seen a lot of people fake, creating fake tweets, which essentially means you open up the HTML file that sits behind the tweet, you manipulate the text, close it and then reopen the file with a browser and you have completely changed what the tweet says. It honestly takes about a minute and it looks identical. There's, no, there's, there's a couple of ways you might tell that it's very, very difficult. And essentially what I've seen is a sort of slew of misinformation that quite easily sits alongside real data, really trustworthy data, and it's almost impossible to say which one is which. I was meant to start with the good things, and I accidentally started with the bad things, because I got taken down the wrong path. Well, where I was going, by my, by my own, see, by my own scepticism, where I meant to be, where I wanted to be going with the opportunity, with the, with the volume of data, was that that is also a very, very powerful thing. Access to people. I'm currently uh, working on a book. I have been able to reach people that would have been completely impossible to get hold of without Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. Going into chat room forums, finding where people live much of their lives online, places where it would have been, I wouldn't have even known where to begin to find people that, for example, small communities of people that talk about anorexia. Very important subject, very difficult to find those people. Chat rooms full of people discussing it that you can go in and make contact with. It's absolutely remarkable. On Facebook, I ran, two years ago, and it lasted for about 18 months, I ran a series of polls where I targeted, using Facebook, the online supporters, that is to say people that had liked something on Facebook, of about 15 different far-right political parties across Europe, uh, in each of the native languages. 
Hungary, Greece, uh, UK, France, Netherlands, and a load of others. And I went to Ipsos Mori and asked them, how could, could, I, is, could I poll these groups and how would I get to them? And they couldn't give me a price because it was impossible to reach these people. Well, in the space of six months, I had approximately 15,000 completed surveys from 12 different countries, from 15 different groups, at about 2000, for about £2,000. A completely impossible to imagine any other way, but a really valuable data. Yes, lots of weaknesses. It's an online sample. It's self-selection bias. And yes, there are weaknesses, and you can overcome some of those. But the ability to reach that number of people and, and find out what that relationship was between their online and offline person and ask them lots of different questions, it's absolutely remarkable and extremely cheap. Now, at my centre at Demos, uh, at the moment, we're doing a lot of Twitter analysis, that is to say, taking very, very large Twitter data sets and trying to understand what, how people are talking about certain subjects. Now, I'm sure you, many of you are familiar with sentiment analysis or social media analytics and all these buzzwords that companies are using to try to sell products about giving you insight on Twitter and Facebook. My view is a lot of it is a bit of a rip-off because most of this is free. Most of this you can get it anyway. You can access what's called the Twitter Spritzer. It's a silly name, it's called the Spritzer, but essentially what it means is you can link into Twitter's computers with your computer, and Twitter will give you for free 1% of all the data that's coming out of Twitter at any one time. When 200 million tweets are coming out every day, you're talking about a lot of data that you can freely access and do with it what you will. You can look at trends, you can look at what people are speaking about, you can look at what's spiking and surging. And it's not just Twitter. Most companies, most of the social media platforms especially, are beginning to recognise the value of opening up some of their data sets and getting people to use it. It's called API access, uh, application programming interface, where they, like I said, they make it relatively simple where you do need to know something technical to link your computer to their computers or to their servers and just start pulling off data. In a, on a scale that you would have been unimaginable 10 years ago and pretty much for free. So, pretty incredible opportunities here, I think. But now I turn to the, the, the dark side, and I already gave you one, which is information credibility. And that's not just on the big level, that's on the single tweet level, that when, you're look, when you see something, since you're, you can never quite be sure. And I have seen an awful lot of misinformation, intentional, unintentional, Masquerading is true. If you Google Martin Luther King, I think you'll find that the second or third hit is a website called martinlutherking.org. But do a little bit of scratching under the surface there and you'll find that it's hosted by Stormfront, the neo-Nazi white supremacist group from the US. Constantly filling the website with little bits of misinformation, but it looks very, very accurate indeed. And I think that summarizes quite neatly some of the problems. At the meta level, though, about trying to understand what these bigger trends are, I mentioned before that social sciences has this sort of battery of techniques to make sense of data. And we don't have them for these big Twitter data sets or these big Facebook data sets. We don't really know when somebody's trolling somebody, whether they really mean it. We don't really know when someone says they like Bon National on Facebook, whether that means they're really going to vote for them or not. We don't know, and this is more significant and I think more problematic, we don't know how far we can generalise from the data that we're seeing on social media. So the way to sort of try to des descri describe this well is you've probably noticed an increasing number of news outlets saying that Twitter responded 
to this story with outrage. Twitter users responded with fury. Twitter users were disgusted by the like. What exactly does that mean? How representative is a group of Twitter users that a journalist might have just happened to scroll through on his or her timeline? Well, the reality is that you can use better techniques and you can use some of the automated techniques I was mentioning briefly before when you can plug in and get loads of data and use machines to try to help you categorize them and filter them. But no journalists really use any of those techniques yet. So I see a lot of talk about what Twitter and Facebook have been saying. It's rubbish. It's completely meaningless. It's all it's saying essentially is me, the journalist, saw a few people tweeting something, which is which is really not particularly good journalism. And the, 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 the second sort of set of challenges is about ethics. Now I'm more familiar with research ethics than journalistic ethics, but I assume they're vaguely similar. <laughs> Although I'm assuming equally that you're allowed to go a little bit further in the public interest than I am, and, and quite right so. But there are clearly quite a lot of ethical problems here. The sort of etiquette, or the netiquette online is that if you write something online, those words belong to you. It's not, it's not enshrined in law, although there are some interesting challenges about that at the moment. But you write it, it's essentially yours, which means that if you're ever quoted anywhere using it, you should be, it should be attributed to you, or ideally you'd be given some, you should be offered some sort of permission for using it. I don't really see that being an established practice. One of the great ways that we determine the ethics of anything is trying to understand the expectation that somebody might have of to whether where they are online is private or public. It's a misnomer to say, it's inaccurate to say that because it's available online it's public. I think that's one of the great misconceptions because a lot of people go into chat rooms and forums where they can reasonably believe that is closed, that that is, that is their space, that is a private space, even if it is accessible publicly. And if they have the expectation that they're speaking in private, that does change slightly the ethical dilemma that you face. Now, I've seen journalists happily going in to closed groups where they've had to ask for membership, where they've created a fake name, They've gone in and they've just been listening to conversations in closed rooms and then presenting it as presenting it as a story. I've seen journalists who create fake profiles and communicate with somebody under this pseudonym. Now I'm not precisely sure what you can and can't get away with, but I know that me as a researcher, a social science researcher, cannot get away with doing that. I mean, I have to get quite, I'd have to really justify why I was breaching somebody's privacy to that extent. I had to talk about the possible risks to that person. Not to mention the fact that I could highly misrepresent them because when people talk in chat rooms, they're often, they talk in a different way to how they talk in the real world, they're more violent or more aggressive or whatever. So there's a danger that me as the researcher presenting whatever they've been saying could cause great harm unfairly to that individual as well. So ethics for me is going to become an increasingly tricky area for researchers and I think for journalists too, especially if, as I've said, we're all journalists now anyway. So just a couple of simple final messages about, about all of this. And I, I, I've sort of danced over a lot of sometimes quite complicated subjects and maybe we'll go, go into some of the detail in a moment. But I think we as a society desperately need good journalists. Whether that is journalists who can curate information better for us, because when there is so much of it out there, I think a lot of people need to know what to trust, and the sort of trusted editors and the trusted gatekeepers of information, like the Encyclopedia Britannica, 
have largely what well, their significance in society or centrality in, in sort of marshalling and managing information has been diminished. Now, to some extent, some places like Wikipedia have done a pretty okay job, but in many places, not at all. So I think we as a society desperately need good journalists, but especially each of us to become a journalist in a sense, each of us to become expert in knowing how you, valid, how you validate and weigh up different source material. And again, something that's not well enough at all, but I think is such an important skill. Now, to help journalists, whether it's the professional journalists or whether it's the non-professional public journalists, I think increasingly what you need is some grounding in modern analysis of social media and internet data sets, some technical know-how about how big data scrapes work, about the norms of social media platforms, about what it means to be in a Facebook group, about why people share information about themselves, about the weaknesses of sentiment and automated sentiment analysis technique, because this is where so much information and action is taking place. But the te technological understanding that's very helpful to make sense of that still lives essentially in, often in computer science departments. And it's difficult for lots of it. So my sort of plea, I suppose, to any journalist and all journalists is to start looking into this, start applying the tools and techniques of traditional journalism about how you validate these sources to this new world. And I think then it will be a great benefit to, uh, to all of us. Um, That's great. Thanks very much.